Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. This is the Informer Daily for Tuesday, the 14th of April, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today, your COVID-19 update. The 1918 flu pandemic hit some parts of the world harder than others. One of these places was the island of Samoa. We find out how the legacy of that pandemic has changed the response to infectious diseases there. But actually Samoa saw some of the worst um, rates, not just of 1918, but of any known epidemic where at least one in five Samoans died in just a matter of weeks. This period of social isolation and working remotely has changed how we interact with each other. We talked to a Deakin University expert about how random acts of kindness are part of that. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy News COVID-19 Bulletin for Tuesday the 14th of April. The rate of new COVID-19 cases in Australia is continuing to slow, with no states recording more than 12 new cases in the last 24 hours. Australia has confirmed over 6,000 cases with nearly 3,500 recoveries and 61 deaths. The Australian Council of Social Services says Australia must do more to support those out of work due to COVID-19 amid new reports from the Treasury that predict the jobless rate in Australia will hit 10%. This would be the highest level of unemployment in Australia in 26 years. ACOS Chief Executive Cassandra Goldie says the job seeker payment has always been too low and the temporary increase made during the pandemic needs to be permanent. Australian universities are committing over $110 million to help international students facing hardship due to COVID-19, but they say the government also needs to offer support as Australia's reputation is on the line. There are over 570,000 international students currently in Australia, many of them are out of work, face barriers to returning home and don't have access to social security payments. International students contribute around $39 billion to Australia's education sector. The loss of this revenue would decimate university budgets and cost thousands of jobs. China has reopened its wet markets, a move backed by the World Health Organization, despite evidence linking Wuhan's wet markets to the initial outbreak of COVID-19. The World Health Organization says it supports the reopening of the markets because they provide a livelihood and food security to many people. Prime Minister Scott Morrison says he is puzzled by the decision to reopen the markets and he doesn't yet believe they can be made safe. Researchers in Melbourne are finding a way to use a single ventilator to treat two patients in a world first which has already seen a successful first trial. Although more trials are needed, doctors involved in the study are saying the practice could be used in extreme emergencies to ensure as many people can access the life-saving devices as possible. 
A police chief in Florida has been placed on administrative leave after allegations he suggested a colleague's COVID-19 death was related to their sexuality. The alleged comments were made while police chief David Engel was brushing off concerns raised by other officers about potential exposure to the virus. The Queensland Government will give a further $28 million to mental health services to provide more support during the COVID-19 pandemic. Queensland Health Minister Stephen Miles said both the quarantine itself and the grief caused by the virus is putting a strain on individuals' mental health. Victoria is expanding its testing criteria, so now anyone who shows symptoms of COVID-19 will be tested, even if they've not had contact with a known case or been outside Australia. Health Minister Jenny McCarkos describes these new criteria as the widest in Australia. Australia's Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy claims an illegal dinner party attended by staff of a Tasmanian hospital can be linked to the outbreak in the state's northwest. These claims have been disputed by Tasmanian Premier Peter Goodwin, who says the dinner party is a rumour which has been referred to police. Two northwestern hospitals have now been closed due to the outbreak and all people connected with these hospitals are in quarantine. This is the Informer on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emily Johnson. COVID-19 is currently hitting many nations, but one place with a particularly painful history of pandemics is Samoa. I spoke with Damon Salesa, the University of Auckland's Pro-Vice-Chancellor Pacific, about the impact the 1918 flu had in Samoa and its legacy. My name is Damon Salesa and I'm Pro-Vice-Chancellor Pacific at the University of Auckland. Samoa had actually gone through a really big change in 1918 because in 1914 it had been a German colony and then New Zealand, with actually Australian support, had gone in and effectively invaded Samoa and claimed it for the British Empire and it was governed by New Zealand on behalf of the British Empire. So it had gone through a big change from being a German colony to a New Zealand colony and on the ground that had some effect in Samoan lives but on the whole you know it really just changed one colonial master for another and so Samoa was a relatively prosperous colony it had done pretty well through very large German plantations Uh, Samoans mostly have pretty good access to land and so live a pretty good life through sustainable agriculture. And so Samoa was in a pretty productive place. It had had epidemics before, especially in the mid-1800s, but it had been some time in 1918 since there'd been a major one that had hit Samoa. So Samoa's population, which had been really strongly impacted when the first Europeans had come, had been climbing essentially since the 1860s and 70s. And so Samoa was in a pretty good space in 1918, largely untouched by the war. Samoans were relatively prosperous. And so all seemed well. And the kind of handful of Samoans who went to war um, were about to come back to Samoa. Overall, many Pacific populations didn't have a large inherited herd or personal immunity. So there was some predisposition on individual Samoan to getting some new diseases. But of course, this was a new strain of flu. So the whole world was in a similar place. The real risk and the risk that actually is true even today with COVID-19 is that Samoans live in large households, typically multi-generational with three or even four uh, generations living inside of a house, very big families compared to the average Australian or New Zealand family and also very social lives. A lot of engagement with neighbours, with people in the village, with the extended ainga or family. And so many of the risk factors we see for spreading disease were present in Samoan lives and are still present in Samoan lives. The story is kind of well known that this particular strain of influenza was brought back home with 
the soldiers who were returning from the the First World War. And although there was a small group of Samoan soldiers who'd gone, both indigenous Samoans and kind of local Europeans, there weren't many and they all came back to Samoa through New Zealand. And so the disease had already registered in New Zealand. People knew about the global problem with the influenza epidemic. And there was an opportunity clearly to close the border and protect Samoa. And actually there was a quarantine in place when the ship that brought it, the Tulum, um, left New Zealand. And just like Australia and New Zealand have at the moment, people who reported symptoms were supposed to notify the captain of the ship and the medical officer of the ship, and they were supposed to tell the medical officer of the colony of Samoa. And actually, when the Tulum got to Samoa, it was evident that some of the passengers were symptomatic, but they didn't notify the medical officer. And there was actually a royal commission around exactly this point, who knew about the symptoms and who notified whom. And it seems like it was sloppy all around. And so the passengers were allowed to come off the ship and circulate in Samoa. And that was sort of the ground zero for the influenza virus landing in Samoa through this one ship. We know the dates, we know the name of the ship, the Tulum. And from that point onward, incredibly rapidly, the um, virus spread through Samoa. There was an initial reaction, which was the sheer panic and emergency of the speed and virulence with which the virus spread. And if you think through a place like Samoa in 1918, when the ship came, which was relatively infrequent, everyone gathered to meet the ship, often for you know real reasons, sometimes just out of curiosity and just out of almost a ceremony. And so Samoans would come and meet the ship. So almost from the very beginning, the virus could then return with those people to the villages. And it just showed how connected Samoa was that almost instantaneously the virus had spread to the furthest corners of Samoa. And so the initial response was that the problem of the emergency where so many Samoans died and so many particular kinds of Samoans. So much like this COVID-19, the influenza epidemic of 1918 actually impacted very heavily on older people. But unlike COVID-19, it also impacted very, very much on infants and young children. And so families were faced with this enormous problem of both the old and the young dying and dying rapidly. To a degree that, I mean, is quite staggering for us to contemplate where, you know, we imagine the worst case scenarios in Australia and New Zealand for COVID-19 were tens of thousands of people dying, which is a, a fraction of these populations. But actually Samoa saw some of the worst um, rates, not just of 1918, but of any known epidemic where at least one in five Samoans died in just a matter of weeks. So the level of death was so high and accompanying that was the majority of people were also ill that basic things like being unable to bury the dead, being unable to care for the sick, being unable to produce the basics of life, all that weighed really heavily on Samoans. And so that sort of overwhelmed any initial response. But when it became known afterwards the way that New Zealand had handled it, especially key officials, that they hadn't quarantined well, and when this kind of failed quarantine, which was both negligent and I think probably a little bit malicious, was contrasted with right next door, the American colony of Samoa, American Samoa, which fully closed the border and suffered no fatalities. Then Samoans began to totally justifiably and understandably become enormously angry with the way New Zealand had handled it. And then things came out like American Samoa had offered medical assistance and they'd been turned down. Some of the things that colonial officials who saw the world through eyes that all of us would think of as racist now, and the way they responded, they saw Samoans as making matters worse, as 
you know, Samoan cultural and social habits as exacerbating the whole thing. Once all that stuff started to come out, Samoans just grew angrier and angrier and began actually approaching the New Zealand government. They approached actually the British government. Some even approached the American government and a whole lot approached the League of Nations in Geneva asking to be taken from New Zealand that anyone else would do a better job. And that enormous death toll would shape Samoan political life for a generation because all Samoans had lost someone and all Samoans held New Zealand culpable for those deaths. The most obvious legacy was the loss of lives. And because it focused on the old and the young, a whole generation of Samoan leaders were lost. So the equivalent of what we would now call the parliament at that time, which was called the Funo or Faipule, almost every single person in that house, every single one of the Faipule, died in the epidemic. And if you think about what that would do to any nation, where you lose all your political leadership, that changes everything. And then if you think those who remained saw the world through the lens of the illness. And in Samoan, they call it the fa'ama'i, the kind of sick time or the sick way. And so many of the people who came to the fore had very personal experiences of the influenza. For instance, one of the the emerging Samoan leaders, uh, Taisi Olaf Nelson, had lost his only son in the influenza epidemic and clearly mourned that loss for decades to come and became the kind of key agitator against New Zealand. So... Everyone kind of looked back to the influenza epidemic as not just a a health event, not just this kind of massive social tragedy, but almost as a political sea change, maybe even a revolution. And when the biggest of the Samoan independence movements was founded, the headquarters of that political movement was at a Samoan village called Vaimusul. And Vaimusul was the place where the mass graves for the dead in the Samoan capital of Apia had been dug. So this was not an accident. Out of the tragedy of the influenza epidemic, there was a galvanising of Samoan nationalism and independence. But when New Zealand had the opportunity to reflect on that and perhaps improve or try and heal some of these wounds, instead they tended to make it worse. You know, the ministers back in New Zealand said hurtful and frankly shameful things. And then there was a royal commission. You know, there was an inquiry into how it had happened. And it didn't really satisfy any of the critics of the government that looked to be kind of largely a a dismissal of the culpability of Samoan officials. So New Zealand didn't act in a way that could have helped heal things, if that were even possible, when 20% of Samoans are dead and New Zealand's blamed for it. But there wasn't really any will to try and make things better. And so basically for the next 20 years in in Samoa, there was an active and open grievance against New Zealand. And the kind of wounds that people felt were never really properly named or even treated by New Zealand officials. So the New Zealand response was totally underwhelming. The influenza epidemic was clearly a part of the apology that was made by Helen Clark when she was Prime Minister to the Samoan government, which apologised for the many different wrongs that New Zealand had committed in Samoa. And so that was clearly an enormous and powerful statement. Of course, it doesn't bring anyone back, but just acknowledging the wrong becomes the ground on which better relationships can be constructed. And even though Samoa and New Zealand have for a long time had a relatively close and constructive relationship, the apology was a really important part of that. 
I think there's certainly a legacy amongst um, key leaders in Samoa who understand what happened in 1918 and the risk that Samoa sort of still faces through epidemics of the scale. But also alongside that was the epidemic of the measles, which really played out in Samoa over the last year to 18 months. And I think that's probably the one that really is at the front of Samoan minds, both in New Zealand and in Samoa, because the measles epidemic took you know close to 100 lives in Samoa and led to enormous lockdowns in Samoa. There was actually two whole days where they just basically closed down Samoa to try and up the vaccination rate to produce the herd immunity. And so the recent memory of that measles epidemic and the longer memory of the 1918 epidemic combined clearly have a powerful influence in Samoa. And I think also that key medical officials know that Samoa's not very well equipped to deal with high rates of particularly those who might need intensive care. You know, it's a relatively good health system in Samoa, but it's not a wealthy one. It has key restrictions on things like hospital facilities, and so it would be a very, very challenging thing, very, very challenging, were COVID-19 to get to Samoa. That was Damon Salesa speaking to me about Samoa's history of pandemics. I'm Emily Johnson for The Informer on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Self-isolation is changing some of the ways that people are interacting socially. And we're even seeing many people perform random acts of kindness, which they may not have done before. And we're also finding new ways about connecting with others through remote and online means. The Informer spoke to Associate Professor of Philosophy Patrick Stokes to discuss what this means. So we're seeing communities respond to self-isolation in various ways. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are facing problems that are kind of, you know, unique. We haven't um, we haven't seen sort of a situation that approximates this in a very long time. So can you tell me about some of the things that we're seeing communities do um, in response to some of the problems that come with self-isolation? Yeah, one of the really um, striking things about events like this that leads to these kind of, you know, um, new forms of engagement, new forms of, of kindness, new forms of care, is just that things like pandemics and war and disease in general and just any kind of, you know, sudden dramatic break in regular life exposes just how radically dependent people are on each other. Um, and the way in which, and I'm going to borrow a term here from a guy called Kay Lustrup, who's a 20th century Danish philosopher, um, the way in which other people are always to some extent in our power when we encounter them, just the situation puts them in our power. And so, look, let, let me give you a, a really like um, simple example of that from my own street, right? Um, we've got a lot of young kids living in this street, including mine. And, of course, everyone's going out for their little um, walks every day that you're allowed to do um, as, as part of the social distancing rules. You're allowed to go out for a walk with your household. Um, but, of course, you can't talk to anyone else, really, while you're out there. Or if you do, you have to do it from a distance and while walking along. So one of the things that's happened is, for instance, um, as kids are going through the street every day, people are putting things out in their front yard to entertain the kids. So people are leaving out notes for them or artwork. Uh, one of the neighbours actually said, oh, let me know what time you're going for your walk. I try and quit, she said this. Let me know what time you're going for your walk and we'll inflate our giant dinosaur we've got out the front so the kids can see it inflated as they walk past. So, so these little things that people are doing that suddenly um, involve new kinds of, of often really small or trivial kinds of care for people, as well as the big things that happen as well too, of course, like people um, you know, bringing groceries around for people or doing welfare checks and um, you know, all, all the way through to things like you know, landlords writing to their renters or to their tenants and saying, don't worry about the rent, just, you'll be fine, or, which is happening a little bit, unfortunately, not as much as it probably should be. Um, definitely not as much as it should be. But there, so there, there are all these kind of um, acts in which people are responding to the fact that 
Um, we all have a certain degree of power over each other as to how well or badly our lives go in these tiny little ways every day. And people are kind of rising to that, I think, to a certain extent and saying, okay, how can I, um, knowing that and having that made manifest to me, how can I actually do something that's going to make this person's life go a bit better in this extraordinary and really difficult situation that we're all just kind of groping our way through. What drives people to kind of adopt this more kind and more accommodating sort of style of of interacting with people under these circumstances? There's probably a few things going on. Um, one of it is perhaps a kind of vulnerability um, that gets exposed that's in a way always there, right? We're always vulnerable to other people. We're always vulnerable to external shocks we're always vulnerable to things like disease and, and unemployment and sudden things that can happen to us um, but of course we're living in a time where all of that is made much more salient it's much more visible and i think that perhaps makes people more attuned to the ways in which we are actually dependent upon each other um, and of course everyone is, is also feeling kind of precarious themselves and, and that and that probably does again uh, make manifest to us the extent to which other people matter to us you know they're, they're there are, you know, well understood ways in which um, being in the presence of risk or death and things, you know, shocks you out of your normal concerns, shocks you out of your normal way of uh, of being absorbed in your own affairs and, and makes you more attuned to others. Um, I think a lot of the commentary we're seeing saying, oh, the world's going to be completely different after this. It's going to be better in some ways. I think a lot of that is actually a little bit over-optimistic. Um, the playwright Henry Gibson famously said most people are pretty noble when they're standing next to a dead body, but as soon as the, gra- the grass has grown over the grave, they go back to how they were before. Um, so there is a kind of um, a worry in some ways that some of this might be temporary or it might just require these sorts of shocks to actually um, knock us out of our own kind of egotistical self-absorption. Can you talk about telecommunications and whether or not they count as real or fake interactions are they somewhere in between because a lot more people are obviously interacting only through online means or only through technologically mediated means yeah and doing so in ways that they never imagined having to do before um so it's interesting that some of these like things like zoom and skype have become uh built into the fabric of it how we work and how we socialize in ways that we wouldn't have seen happen before um the are they real or fake? Uh, well, they're real. The question is what is kind of adequate or inadequate about them or what's, what's deficient about them. Uh, and that's actually, this, this worry about the realness of it um, is well over a century old, which is weird. We don't necessarily think of that when we think about electronic communication. We think of it as something that sort of only just happened. We forget that actually, you know, the, the first telegraph was invented in 1816. It wasn't actually Morse. It was, another, it was an English guy. Um, so we're actually into the third century now of electronic communication. Uh, in 1909, E.M. Forster, who, you know, who wrote all those sort of, you know, Merchant Ivory, or the, the books that got turned to Merchant Ivory, um, he writes a short story called The Machine Stops, right, which imagines a future world, he doesn't say exactly when it's set, when humans all sit in their tiny little apartments communicating with everyone else all over the world through a gigantic global communication network called The Machine, Right. And so people freak out about this and they're like, my God, he invented the Internet in 1909. Um, but there's this really interesting moment early on in that where it's a young man called Kuno ringing his uh, mother, Vashti, and saying, I want you to come and visit me. And she's like, oh, why do we need to visit? You know, we can talk, just talk through the machine. Well, look, I see something like you in this video plate, but I don't see you. I hear something like you through this telephone, but I don't hear you. 
Um, and of course, he's getting at that anxiety that's not real. It's not real communication unless it's face-to-face. But think how weird that phrase sounds now. I hear something like you through the telephone, but I don't hear you. That's not the experience you and I have of telephones, right? Because we've grown up a hundred and something years after the telephone was invented. So we're quite embodied to the technology. And you don't think I'm hearing an uh, you know, electronic recreation of somebody's voice right now. You think oh, I'm just talking to whoever you're talking to. Uh, you and I are talking right now, right? But there's no sense of the mediation drops out because you just don't notice it. Um, and that is, I think increasingly true of um, things like video communication, you do achieve a genuine kind of presence, what's sometimes called telepresence. Now telepresence maybe is not as good as directly being there. And that's why, for instance, people quite rightly, I think got upset in the U S when prisons uh, introduced video calls to and then said, Oh, and by the way, because you've got the video calls now we're getting rid of um, in-person visitation. It's it be, there is something about being physically present with someone that, that makes a difference. But I think it's a difference in degree rather than kind. And I think one thing that people really are learning is that you can still be present in other people's lives in these sorts of mediated ways. Um, but at the same time, technology fails when it calls attention back to the fact that it's a mediated experience. That kind of breaks the spell briefly. So when your phone drops out or when the, the screen freezes if you're on a Zoom call or something like that. Do, do you think that going through a time where we can only communicate with certain people um, online, do you think that we might come back after quarantine has been lifted and sort of value the time that we spend face-to-face even more? You'd hope so, but I think we're very, very quick to forget lessons that we've learned, unfortunately. We sort of um, regress to the mean pretty quickly. I had the experience too um, a few years ago now, um, about five years ago, we had our 20th high school anniversary, or 20th high school reunion, 20-year high school reunion. And... um, Ten years before that, we had the ten-year anniversary, the ten-year reunion, and on the ten-year reunion, I remember walking in and looking around, going, "Who are all these fat old blokes?" Right? Everyone, because everyone, I, I hadn't seen them since they were like eighteen, and everyone suddenly looked, you know, twenty-eight. They looked different. Um, but then walking into the twenty-year one, I walk in, there's a room full of thirty-eight-year-old blokes, and it's like, "Oh yeah, I know what you all look like," because I see you all on Facebook anyway. So it's kind of like there's this continuity that happens between. Um, online communication and face-to-face communication, which maybe wasn't there 10 years before. Uh, in fact, Luciano Floridi, who's a philosopher of information, uh, some of his colleagues call this the on-life paradigm. The idea is that the online and the offline distinction, it, it hasn't completely broken down, but it is to a large extent breaking down or at least becoming much more fluid. And so instead of the internet being Uh, as it was, say, back in the 1990s, where you actually had to sit in front of a computer and log on and go onto the internet. Um, Now, the internet is something you just carry around in your pocket or on your wrist, um, as well as on your laptop. And it's just become part of the sort of fabric of the way in which we work through the world and the way in which we talk through to people and and just move along. It's a much more embodied thing than it used to be. Uh, And that, I think, does make a difference in the the difference between face-to-face communication and online communication, namely, to a certain extent, they've collapsed into the one um, complex way of engaging with people. That was Associate Professor Patrick Stokes of Deakin University speaking to Nicholas Kamenier-Sandry. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Singing in our things Can only get better Can only get better If we see it through Can only get better
That's all for us today. Thanks to Emily Johnson, Nicholas Kamenyusandri, Dee Mason, Dina Curie, and everyone at Joy 94.9 for their production help today. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Mahalo. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.